This is a Federal News Network podcast. Nearly every federal agency is talking about digital transformation, using the latest technologies to improve how they operate and what they deliver to constituents. An important part of modernizing Puzzle, though, is the network that delivers all of that data. It's got to be up-to-date and secure. For some insight, we turn to BitGlass Senior Solutions Engineer Ed Lopez. Mr. Lopez, good to have you on. Hey, Tom. Great to be here. Thank you. And with former Transportation Department CIO Ryan Cody. Mr. Cody, good to have you back. Thank you, Tom. Great to be here. All right. Let's start with a term you have put out, which is security architecture. Often you don't hear security and architecture put together like you do with enterprise or network and systems architecture. So maybe let's define the terms here a little bit. Ed? The idea with regard to security architecture is its ability to be able to prevent to uh, detect, to mitigate, and to recover from security events. Uh, you know, uh, trying to provide within our architecture the tools that are necessary to accomplish these four major aspects of security. Ryan, let me ask you, with respect to a large federal department, which is really many, many components and often headquarters is the least of them, you really are dealing with multiple networks. And is there a way to kind of harmonize all that or rope all the cattle together so that they go in the same direction? Yeah, that's the goal, ultimately, of course. While security architecture has many definitions, you know, ultimately it comes down to it being a set of security principles and, and methods and models designed to align your objectives, keep your organization safe as possible from all cyber threats, and then, as Ed said, a way to recover from them should they occur. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the ultimate goal is, is alignment across the organization, standards. Um, you know, we'll get into that, I think, a little bit with different um, cybersecurity frameworks and tools, but um, ultimately you want best practices across the organization and uh, the most robust security architecture and framework you can have and an ability to be nimble and responsive to all threats because they're constantly evolving. So you really have to take an <laughs> incremental approach maybe to modernization? Is that the way you would put it? There is a need for an incremental approach, but there's also a need for, as you mentioned, uh, you know, vehicles like uh, the White House executive order in May, which indicates basically an imperative that we need to move towards these things. I know you're going to have later questions about the executive order. But uh, the thing is, this is this was a stimulating action. This was uh, this was a call to arms that basically said, look, we need to move toward uh, a zero trust environment towards, uh, you know, software sourcing towards the ability to uh, support encryption and multi-factor authentication. These were all things that that were put into EO. Now, uh, fortunately, uh, I've had a, a lot of opportunity to work with Department of Transportation over this past year when Ryan was uh, CTO. And one thing I will absolutely uh, you know, say is that Ryan and his team were way ahead of the curve on this. They understood the issues with regard to cloud migration. They understood the issues of uh, being able to you know, put uh, uh, you know, operational efficiency into their security posture. And that was, uh, quite honestly, a, a great thing to work with, you know, particularly with DOT. Sure. Ed Lopez is Senior Solutions Engineer at BitGlass, and we're also talking to that former CIO of transportation, Ryan Cody. And so given the executive order, then, Mr. Cody, what 
if you were still in the government, what would you do first to get good with it? Because it does mention zero trust specifically and might be the first executive order to use that language. So as Ed said, we were a little bit ahead of the curve on this. And uh, I'd like to say, you know, I, I saw it coming, but of course, we didn't see the executive order coming. We just knew zero trust was where we wanted to be. And a solution like that was was where you know the future is taking us. And so we were we were lucky enough, you know, or fortunate enough to have taken steps to, to get there. You know, if I were still there, the most obvious requirements are just complying with the executive order itself and getting back to OMB with the plans that they required, the assessment and the different tiers, the logging tiers, ELO zero through three and, and see where we're at. It's hard sometimes to just feel like you're being driven by checking boxes. But in this case, it's helpful. It's good that the executive order had some teeth, it had some deadlines, it had some dates you had to meet. And it's really, although it's it's hard in government because there's, there's never a shortage of work, it's hard to keep piling on more work and more requirements. But it's good that there were deadlines in there. And, and again, I think all the agencies and departments, CIOs are striving, working as hard as they can to meet those deadlines. And ultimately, that just leads to better cyber practices throughout the government, better cyber hygiene. Um, again, if I were not at transportation, for instance, if I, if I hadn't already implemented uh, the technology for zero trust, that would be my first move as any federal CIO in any department or agency. I would just go get a solution, put it in place and just go. It, it, there's just no point in waiting. Even if you, know, you get it a little bit wrong at first and, and you have to spend some time turning knobs and tweaking it to perfection, you, you just have to get started. And so that's where I would focus now is just plant your flag and go. We can tell you're up to date because you said turning knobs instead of moving alligator clips around on a breadboard. So I guess that puts us into the <laughs> almost to the century. But uh, maybe, Ed, if you would just discuss the importance of this as not so much zero trust in its own right, but as an enabler of digital transformation, modernization, and all of those good things. It's funny. I have a, a kind of an interesting view on this because I've been in cybersecurity for over 25 years. Before it was zero trust, we used to call it least privilege. I mean, it was something that has been around for some time. And my point of view is that over, you know, these past couple of decades, as we, you know, become more and more networked, we have been doing these, trying to do these types of things, but we've been dealing with it, I would say, in an, with operational inefficiency. What I mean by that is, okay, we, you know, we, we dealt with our bricks and mortar. Then we have to deal with remote users. Well, okay, I got to set up a VPN thing over there. Oh, I have to start looking at certain internal apps. That's yet another console I have to look at. Oh, my cloud apps. Now that's yet another console I have to look at. And you're trying to, you know, choreography all of these elements together and it becomes very, very difficult. What zero trust is really about is the ability to orchestrate this, to the the ability to have a uh, a, a point of reference, a single pane of glass management, if you would, uh, the ability to be able to coordinate on the same page. For example, we've been dealing over the past year or plus about with COVID-19. Well, COVID-19 to employees, federal or not, was akin to a prison break, right? I mean, people fled out of the uh, out of the uh, cubicles and out of their sites, and suddenly that VPN that was supposed to be handling five percent of my people is now trying to handle a hundred percent. And I'm now trying to figure out how do I adjust to where this is. 
we have to ultimately recognize that zero trust is about our ability to broker communication from users, from devices, wherever they may be, to the cloud apps, to the private apps, to the internet, you know, those elements that we need to get to. And it can't be, you know, site specific the way it was anymore. This idea of perimeter is uh, definitely, it's its not disappearing uh, per se. I mean, you still have to have, you know, firewalls in the buildings, but the thing is uh, how people use you communicate how they use these networks and data has changed. And, uh, you know, the adoption of zero trust, I found it very positive that the executive order particularly outlined a zero trust requirement. And Ryan, can all this be done in less than six months? My answer, absolutely. I think it can be done in a matter of weeks. In fact, of course, assuming once you get past acquisition, right, which in government, as everyone knows, is 90 percent of the battle. Once you find your solution and, and get through the acquisition process, but actually get the tool and the engineers in-house. We at Transportation were able to actually deploy this in less than 30 days. From the day the engineers walked in the door to the day we turned it on and began defining the, the protected surface and mapping transaction flows and architecting the network, creating policies, we were there in less than 30 days. So it absolutely can be done when there's when there's a will. There you have it. Ryan Cody is former CIO of the Transportation Department. Thanks so much for joining me. Absolutely, Tom. And Ed Lopez, Senior Solutions Engineer at BitGlass. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate it. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. 
Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it. Um, From Sea to the C-Suite, fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention and it was, it was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance in some cases and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture 
of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon. Uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing, if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, Think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.